Anti-aging brings to mind this sort of crusade against death, which a lot of the immortalists, that's what they see they're doing, and they're going to cure everyone of, of dying. Aging healthier, aging better, that is something that we've always tried to do because that's what medicine does, essentially. Peter Ward is the author of The Price of Immortality, The Race to Live Forever. The search for eternal life is as old as humanity itself, but could Silicon Valley be onto something? Hello again. Welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. This episode is brought to you in association with Clinique La Prairie, the award-winning spa clinic and pioneering health and wellness destination nestled on the shores of Lake Geneva in Montreux, Switzerland. Combining preventative medicine with bespoke lifestyle and nutrition plans, Clinique La Prairie offers a holistic approach to living fuller, healthier, and longer lives. Peter Ward's book dives into the quest to make humans immortal, the efforts of tech visionaries, scam artists, pseudoscientists, and religious fanatics. What are we to believe, and should we take any of it seriously? Peter, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging Podcast. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be on the show. And the title of our podcast, Live Long and Master Aging, hopefully sets us aside a little bit from those who are pursuing endless life. Fascinating, though, I find it, and clearly you find it interesting as well. What I aspire to is simply living as long as possible with the best of health. But this sphere of longevity, of aging, is so broad now that it encompasses so many different disciplines. I think it can be confusing to people, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, there's, there's people that, like yourself, which have ex- extremely sort of logical pursuits of, of trying to make us live healthier lives for longer. And then, and then it just covers this broad spectrum. And at, at the far end of it is the people that think they're going to live forever. And I think one of the, one of the issues with having that broad spectrum and having people at, at both ends of it is that Sometimes, uh, and we've all seen this with headlines in, in newspapers and on websites, where everything is a is a is a way to live forever. It's it's a cure for death or a way to to make us live until we're five hundred. And what I found, firstly, was was a lot of the gerontologists that I spoke to were extremely frustrated by the claims that we could be immortal, and they found it actually quite detrimental to their work. And, and then on the other side of it, either puts people off. Um, because they think it's crazy, um, and so they they miss out on on real things that can help them live healthier lives. Um, and, and then it, there's also the funding question as well that do some things don't get funding um, the funding that they should get because they're sort of lumped into this um, this group of things which which people say will make you immortal. I think it's a, a huge source of frustration, especially working in health and, and the medical sphere, that so much is spent on trying to live forever, as opposed to perhaps tackling some of the critical diseases of, of today. Yeah, I think the good news with that is that a lot of the paths towards so-called immortality, if that was ever possible, the research does send you down the same route as, as increasing health span. So when people say, you know, I'm going to live forever, I'm going to spend X amount of money to do it, inevitably, because there is no way of living forever that we know of and possibly never will be, they're always sort of funneled down this path and they always end up with the gerontologists and, and the people trying to reverse aging. So 
a good deal of money from even from people who claim you know that we're going to live that we can't live forever people like Aubrey de Grey the money that he raises does actually end up with scientists who, who are treating aging as a disease and who are looking to reverse and to and to ease some of the symptoms of aging so right now it is good that a lot of money goes that way but of course a lot of money also goes into bizarre things you know that are long shots so there's a huge amount of money for example goes into cryonics which does not help anybody in terms of of aging and, and there's no proof that it will ever actually work so all that money you could say is if you were a sort of anti-aging advocate you'd say that's kind of going down a black hole but I would say the majority of it actually and a lot of the Silicon Valley money is going into sort of worthy causes it's just whether they have the same goal if you look at sort of Calico the Google company a lot of the research and studies coming out of there is actually addressing cancer not living forever so it's doing good work. It's just not doing the work that it said it would do, essentially. Just before we delve further into some of those issues that you just raised there, what spearheaded your interest in this area? Was there something in your life that happened that made you interested in longevity or, or even eternal life? Uh, so I wrote a book. My first book was about space. Uh, it was about the privatization of space. And for that book, I interviewed a lot of people who are space fanatics who, who want to see us go out into the universe and and live on, on different planets and, and populate the rest of the solar system. Uh, and a big question that they always come up against is, you know, well, you can't go anywhere because you'll die on the way. Essentially, it's too far to find another ha- habitable planet. So there's this huge crossover between sort of people who want to live forever and people who want to go into space. It's always a question. It's, it's always the way that they answer the question, what, what about overpopulation? It's like, we'll, we'll go to other planets. So that's what sort of got me into this crowd. And I started to think this is a really interesting topic. And then I, I heard about the, the Church of Perpetual Life in Florida. So I thought, okay, I have to go down there and, and meet these people and, and see. My, my most first thought was, you know, is this for real? Is, or is this some kind of tax avoidance scheme? Which I think, to be fair, a lot of people ask the same question. But they're, they're absolutely are genuine and, and, and they want to do this. And, 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 and so, yeah, that's how I got into it. And uh, actually, I mean, to be fair, I met a lot of really lovely and, and nice people along the way in the immortality crowd that just wanted to, to live a bit longer. And you um, referred to just now as uh, some people seeing ageing itself as a disease. I know there's a huge amount of controversy over that very simple statement. Based on your studies of this do you get that? Do you see aging as a disease? I can certainly, yeah. I think on balance, I I, I came around to that. I thought that was a, a completely uh, evidence based statement. I think if we start looking at, at aging as a sort of condition, as something that makes the conditions inside the body that makes them perfect for diseases to flourish. So, I mean, the the old thing, the old study, I think it's, it's a really old study now that said if we cure cancer and if we cure heart disease, then we'll still only raise life expectancy by, I think it was, it was five or ten years or something. Right. I, I, no one's followed up that study for a very long time, so I'm not sure how relevant it still is. But I do think if we started looking at ageing, and I think we have to look at ageing as, as a disease because of the demographic shift that the population, that, that many countries are seeing, we're going to have so many issues with people too old to work and essentially too expensive to look after. And so the more that we look at, at aging as, a, as an overall problem, rather than just try and sort of cure people's individual symptoms of aging, then I think 
that's probably a better way to look at it. The problem is whenever someone tries to get sort of funding for anything towards aging, they're, they're, they're hit with the, oh, you're crazy, you're trying to make us live forever. So it's, uh, yes. it's a complicated one. That's my problem with aging as a disease. And what, what I try to do in this podcast is, is explain some of the issues in very simple terms, or at least simple enough for, for most people to, to get it without coming away with the impression that it's all just crazy. And when you start talking about aging as a disease, I think that is the tipping point for some people into that sort of craziness area, that aging for a lot of people is simply getting older. It's the passage of time. It's the number of years. It's, it's chronological age that, frankly, none of us can do anything about. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about what aging does, it's, it's hundreds of things and thousands of things, maybe hundreds of thousands of things happening inside your body at the same time. Things are not working as they should be. There's, there's so many different parts. The hallmarks of aging, um, which I went into in the book, are extremely complex. And so in one way, you're saying, you know, aging is a disease is, is, a, is a good thing. In another, it does oversimplify the problem of aging because declaring a disease suggests that there will be a cure for that disease, or maybe one cure. But there's no way you could cure aging with one. There's never going to be a sort of one silver bullet solution. It's thousands of things going wrong in your body because we're genetically coded to deteriorate and eventually die. They sort of call it the whack-a-mole issue, is that you could solve 99 things associated with aging, and then but there'll be a hundredth one, and that's the one that will kill you. I can see why people sort of go away from that, because I think it does oversimplify it, but and it also does take you into the realms of, of almost fantasy, I guess. And the other, as well, while we're on the subject, or broadly on the subject, anti-aging or anti-aging, as people here in this country say, uh, that's another term that I think ultimately isn't very helpful. Yeah, so there's a lot of terms thrown around, and I sort of try to not use them interchangeably in my book. I'm not sure if I'm successful. I think you were successful. Yeah, okay, that's good. But yeah, anti-aging brings to mind this sort of crusade against death, which a lot of the immortalists, that's what they see they're doing. It really is. Like this is the thing that they're doing is a battle. They're waging war against death and they're going to cure everyone of of dying. And I think anti-aging, it doesn't bring about the best of connotations. It's, you know, we are aging, that's fine. That's the most natural thing in the world for an organism to do is to age and there's, huge um, evolutionary reasons why we should age and eventually die. So to say sort of anti-aging is sort of going against nature, it's going against science. Aging healthier, aging better, that is something that we've always tried to do because that's what medicine does essentially. The majority of medicine has always been about helping us stay healthier for longer. You mentioned cryonics just now and, and dismissed it in the same breath. And, and that's essentially what you do in the book. Maybe we could just go back for those who aren't fully au fait with what cryonics is. Uh, what is it, or at least what does it aspire to be? And why do you dismiss it? Cryonics is basically the theory that if you freeze a body at the point of death, then and you keep it cryogenically frozen, you keep it in certain conditions, then at some point in the future, a technology will emerge where they can rejuvenate that body, they can bring it back to life, and then you'll get a sort of second life, as it were. And so I spent a lot of time with the cryonics people and spoke to a lot of them. And there's, I mean, they will readily admit themselves, there's no scientific evidence that suggests this will work. And a lot of them even says, there's not a very good chance this will work. There's a 1% chance, there's a 0.1% chance this will work. And, and they'll admit that themselves quite, quite freely. Their argument is, well, I'm dead anyway, so why wouldn't I take the 0.1% chance rather than the 0% chance and be cremated or buried? The reason why I, why I dismiss it 
ultimately. And, you know, I, I could be proved wrong, obviously. There's no, you can never say 100% that something won't work. But the reason why I dismissed it after sort of talking to them, after going into it a lot, is that I think they have reached a point where they put too much emphasis on that future technology. So they, they think that future scientists will figure out a way to bring us back to life and they're putting too much faith and it ultimately becomes a question of faith. And that's too far away from science for my liking personally, when you have to take that leap of faith to, to believe in it. I don't think it will work, but then it's the easiest thing in, this, in the world to say something won't work. So I, I, yeah, I still wish them luck and i think it'd be a great thing if we did find a way to you know at, at least freeze people while we can't address their disease and bring them back to life when we can and you make the interesting point that cryogenics is unfair to the relatives of those people who want to be cryo preserved which i hadn't thought about but i think you're absolutely right because it, it creates huge dilemmas and perhaps false hope as well yeah absolutely it, it causes a lot it can cause a lot of friction within families because a lot of the times people take out a, a sort of second life insurance policy which when they die it pays out to the cryonics company to look after them so um if you're a sort of family member and you see this three hundred thousand dollar payout which goes to another company and perhaps you didn't get as much as you wanted or need or if one member of the family didn't get their inheritance then that can cause a lot of friction another argument is that it takes away the sort of tools that we've grown accustomed to in dealing with death. So you don't really have, you can't really, I guess, accept that the relative is gone in the same way as if you buried them or cremated them. It's quite an invasive procedure that happens. And then obviously you, you, you're not, you don't have that funeral. I mean, I guess you could still have a funeral, but the person would still think that they'd be coming back to life. It, it definitely complicates death and that's hard enough to deal with already, I think. So it can be tough on, on relatives, who, and especially ones that just don't know why they did it. And they, a lot of people don't know about chronics at all until the moment where they realise that a relative has signed up to it. And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. This is the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. My guest is Peter Ward. Peter is the author of a fascinating new book, Exploring the Race to Live Forever. Peter, you've already mentioned some of the Silicon Valley companies that are, are involved in this sphere with pretty high hopes and uh, expectations as to what they could possibly discover. There haven't, to my knowledge, been any significantly huge breakthroughs yet, but First of all, why Silicon Valley? I mean, is it just that the money is there for this kind of thing? Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. But I think it's it's the right people with with the right amount of money. It's it's the people that are future focused. They all grew up watching Star Trek. They're all sort of nerdy, geeky guys, which, you know, I'm not saying is a bad thing. I, I class myself as a nerdy, geeky guy myself. But I think it's the kind of people that, you know, the Silicon Valley sort of mantra is you know basically nothing is impossible and they have lots of them and move fast and break things and things like that so it's the perfect sort of timing for this money and also 
rich, the technology sector is the most powerful in the world right now, I think. I don't think you can really deny that. So it's it's people with a lot of money and on the whole sort of libertarian leanings, which helps. And then also just this um, fascination with all things sort of science fiction and wanting to change the world and what would be the the biggest way to change the world. And that, I guess, would be to stop people dying. It's definitely ego massaging in some cases. In others, like what do you do when you've got all the money in the world and you can do anything What's the one thing that you can't buy is is more time. But I guess Silicon Valley turned around and said, well, why why should that be the case? Maybe we can buy ourselves more time. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, and, and it's interesting because the old immortality crowd used to be quite uh, sort of hippie-ish. It used to be all sort of this new age spirituality. And now you have this Silicon Valley money coming in. And it's really a clash of cultures, those two going up against each other. It's a fascinating time. And I think it was, you mentioned this in the book, Aubrey de Grey, who said that some of these companies are simply finding things out for the sake of finding things out. Is there much of a distinction between what they're doing and what the more established traditional university research departments are doing? I don't think there is a huge difference because they are hiring en masse, the academics. So it's the same people and they're giving loads of money. They're just hitting the same problems that we always do when you try and cure death the results are never going to be as spectacular as you think they're never gonna you know it's not going to be one day oh we've invented the you know everyone drink this solution and then we'll live a bit longer it's a strange one because obviously google and calico they came out and said some very bold statements but if you asked and i've spoken to people who who knew people who work there the, the scientists just were thinking, okay, this is a great way for me to to work on this specific project. They're not thinking in terms of we're going to end death. They're just thinking, okay, well, I I want to work at, on, on on this specific project. Maybe it's something to do with regeneration within the body. Uh, maybe it's a stem cell thing. Maybe it's a, a gene therapy. So a lot of the time, when this money comes in from Silicon Valley, it's just sort of it's it's allocated to age researchers who who don't necessarily believe in the ultimate vision of of the people putting the money in they don't believe that they can make people live forever but they are happy to use the money to make people age better which i think is the key isn't it at least that's how i see it that uh, you've referred to this already that a lot of this research there might be the somewhere in the future distant future this hope of living forever but a lot of this research is today focused it is perhaps the next decade for for people like you and i and diseases that we could potentially get I'm curious, and I know this is a big question, but in in terms of all of your research, is there one area of research that might have that ultimate immortality kind of goal, but it is actually reaping rewards today or potentially reaping rewards in terms of helping us live better today and tomorrow? I don't think there is anything that bridges those two things. And I think that's part of the problem. I think that's part of why the scam artists and, and everything, they work so well, because there's great promise and then there's no actual... There's nothing palpable, so they can easily prey on people because they they've got that promise, but they don't. They can offer something that doesn't do what they say. There are some really areas of research which I found fascinating. There's things like the intermittent fasting and what that does to your cells and how it makes them, you know, puts them into a state where they they think they need to regenerate. I found that sort of really interesting. I, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone because I wouldn't recommend anyone to fast without seriously consulting their doctor beforehand. But if there was a way to sort of mimic fasting within the body, then obviously that could do great things for our health because it's clear that does do good things for the body. There's some amazing work being done in, in senolytics 
treating either getting rid of senolytic cells which you find might not be a great idea if you do get rid of senolytic cells that sort of zombie like cells accumulate as cells die and when they do become in that zombie state they secrete proteins which which damage pretty much everything around them so one of the areas of research is to find a way to stop them secreting those proteins which are damaging to the tissue to anything inside the body and that could actually be done without sort of a big pharma potentially there could be ways of doing that on the sort of supplement side rather than uh, and even natural ways rather than going through big pharma which is another sort of concern of of if we did find a cure for aging then would we all be able to afford it anyway right just going back to fasting and i'll express an interest here as someone who has been a a subject in clinical trials looking at different fasting regimes and and especially fasting mimicking regimes the uh, university of southern california dr walter longo has done a lot of work on this and we've had him as a guest and and others and talked in, in some detail about this one thing and you referred to intermittent fasting one thing that sort of niggles me often is the use of that term and how vague it is and how it can mean to different people lots of different kinds of regimes that really have very little to do with each other. It it could be an intermittent two days a week fasting regime. It could be a a 16-8, which is more like time-restricted eating. It could be a 23-1. You fast for 23 hours, you eat for one hour. You see that what I'm getting at, it covers a, a vast area of interventions, which ultimately I think is quite confusing to people. Yeah, definitely. And I think intermittent fasting has become this sort of, it's a it's a sort of buzzy word. It's a, it's a buzzword. And, and a lot of people presumably think they're doing it and they're not. And I think it's it's because it's not, it's a sort of it's an intervention, but it's not a medical intervention. It, it's it's a diet. So, and diets have always been hard to sort of regulate. You can tell anyone to do anything if you say you're a dietitian. But there's just huge amounts of, of potential. That was one of the areas where the gerontologist said, you know, if I'm absolutely pushed to something that's going to make you live a little bit longer, aside from eat healthily or exercise, they would say try that. Look in look into that. But it is difficult, like you say, because. A lot of people don't know where to start and, and it can be dangerous. Obviously, if you have sort of previous eating disorder, then it could be just absolute chaos. I'll just reinforce what you just said. I wouldn't recommend fasting to anyone without speaking to your doctor. It can be hugely dangerous and it's not something you want to go into blind. You need to see if you are right for it and have your health checked out. So that just that little caveat there. Don't try fasting unless you speak to your doctor. Yeah, absolutely. And um, But you can see here just in practice sort of, um, maybe anyone listening at home, they're probably hearing me saying, you know, maybe that's the one thing that makes us live a bit longer. And something goes off in the back of your head that thinks, I'm going to try it. And that is sort of the appeal of immortality and the appeal of, of these things in practice. You can see how people really get roped into these things so quickly. Like when I was doing the research, I thought, okay, maybe I'll start trying intermittent fasting. But I, I didn't know what a didn't know where to start and b i get far too grouchy when i don't eat so i don't think anyone could <laughs> could live with me I, I think yeah it's it's important that with anything and that's anything that that people say is going to make you live longer that you really do consult a doctor beforehand ideally someone that knows about gerontology because particularly not not so much with intermittent fasting but with other things like other supposed longevity interventions like there's always a, a side effect to it. And I, I don't just mean you getting a headache. Like you can do something that will trigger the cells to live a little bit longer, but that could also increase the chances of cancer at the same time. 
And a lot of the time you just see the headlines of, of this this particular supplement or this particular drug is a potentially miracle drug that could make you live longer. But then, you know, you don't know the long-term effects of that drug and you don't know what else it could trigger within the body. Um, there's a, there is a weird link between cancer and, and immortality um, and, and getting one without the other could be quite difficult. You uh, write in the book that most immortalists subscribe to the theory of biological immortality, and that is living as long as they choose in their current bodies. And that surprised me that most immortalists will subscribe to that theory, because as you've just implied, there are so many things that can, you only have to age, all of us feel the effects of aging. There are so many things that go wrong with our bodies with time. Yeah, this that is really the it's the ultimate form of belief. So I would say it's more likely that we would have some kind of digital immortality than a biological immortality. You could see a path towards that at least, some form of digital immortality. So to say that we live forever in these current bodies is a sort of is an astonishing claim, especially since we don't know how long the earth is going to last, um, how long the earth will be hab- habitable for. And then obviously, yeah, there's just so much that can go wrong. You could you could cure aging and then get hit by a bus the next day. And so they, I mean, they would say, oh, well, well they'll just freeze me and maybe they'll bring me back later. But yeah, it's that is the ultimate sort of, I think, hardcore immortalist that says biological immortality. There's, there's sort of different variants, but those are the very hardcore people. And when you say digital immortality, is that what ABBA are doing? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so yeah i mean i guess around the fringes maybe (laughs) yeah it's i guess digital immortality is yeah it's mind uploading it's a it's a weird sort of offshoot of of immortality it's not scientifically proven it could happen but there's been several movies tv shows if you've watched any science fiction that's about sort of being uploaded to a computer then you get the idea essentially uh, most of the ideas have been taken from that right and I, I do kind of joke about ABBA I suppose what they're doing is it's that digital physical immortality but there's no question that those those four people on that stage in London from a, a few weeks ago have any kind of brain activity or brain resemblance of the real people yeah exactly we, we all know that that's not sort of digital immortality but even if you took it even further even if you took all the memories of the members of ABBA and put them into, if you took every essence of ABBA, if you took all their social media posts, everything they'd ever written, and, and somehow took all the memories out of their brain, there's still a sort of deep philosophical question whether that's just a copy of them or if it's them living longer. So yeah, it's it, you go down some really sort of deep philosophical rabbit holes if you get into digital immortality and, and what makes us human. You uh, hear a lot these days about epigenetic clocks and biological ageing versus chronological ageing. What do you make of this quest to essentially be biologically, to be physically younger than the the calendar suggests? A lot of people are, are paying for these services. A lot of people are trying to figure out whether they are really 42 when they're physically 47 or whatever it is. Is there any point in that? I don't think so, personally. I think all that's going to send you down is a route to sort of obsession with those particular biomarkers, which we can't even be sure because they they take certain biomarkers and say how old you are within those parameters. We can't even be sure those are the definitive ones. Because ultimately, I think always the way that what they're going to tell you is, oh, you, you know, you're slightly older than your chronological age, so you better eat more healthy and exercise and you'll get it down. I don't think any of us need to be told that eating healthy and exercising will improve our biological age. We can all figure that out. We can all do that a little bit more. 
personally, I wouldn't use them. And I, I have seen some people write quite damning papers on the epigenetic clocks that are out there just saying they're absolute nonsense. Some of them use some biomarkers, some of them use others. I think if anyone's charging you a huge amount of money for that, you have to really, really look into them. First of all, are they selling other stuff <laughs> is, a, is a good question to ask. Are they then going to say, you know, you, you're not aging well, so why don't you buy this and you'll age better? That's a big red flag if they're going to sell you a, a, a supposed cure for whatever problem they find. And then also, I don't, yeah, I, I just don't think the information you get is going to be as illuminating as you think it is. What does it even mean that we're sort of five years older than our chronological age? We don't know. Somewhere in us is some kind of genetic code that suggests when we're going to die. But this, those, these epigenetic clocks, I don't think are t- telling us that. And they can't account for things that are completely out of our control as well. Another aspect of, of longevity, I talk about this a lot, and it's a source of frustration, that uh, there is so much out there, some you can believe, respected scientists, some you can be sceptical about, and some you can dismiss very quickly. People are very, very confused about interventions to not only live better now, but potentially extend their lifespan or indeed health span, the number of years that we enjoy the best of health. And it's the confusion, I think, that puts so many people off. They say, well, I'm just not going to bother. I'm going to live and let live. Do you sense that? And is there anyone pushing back against that in the sphere of longevity and and research? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there is definitely, I I got a sense of that. I think when you sort of talk about living longer or or living forever in any respect, and myself included this, you kind of get attacked from all sides. You get the people that say, oh, this is nonsense. You're never going to live a bit longer. So why don't you just stop telling me what to do? And then you also get the people that think they're going to live forever saying, why are you so skeptical? Why are you saying this won't work? And, and, and so you really just, I, I mean, I try and put myself in the middle. I admit I am a skeptic and I, <laughs> maybe I'm too skeptical sometimes, but I think we have to, do a better job of educating people on how to go through these things and determine what is good and what is not. It's really easy to take a look at a, a medical paper and think that looks amazing. It's going to make me live forever. But look at, I mean, I guess one of, one of the golden rules is look at what it's been, if it's been done using mice or other animals, then there's still a huge way to go for that to be translated to humans. So that's probably not going to be something you can do anytime soon. And I think gerontologists get exactly this this thing as well. They get told that they're that they're going against sort of nature by trying to make us age a little bit better. And then they also get told, oh, why aren't you already making us live forever by the people who want to live forever? So it's it's a really confusing. It doesn't help that we have a sort of a, a media which is generally, and, and I'm, I hate generalizing the media because some people do this amazingly, but I think take sort of newspapers and, and sort of general interest. Um, websites and magazines they're not as I guess scientifically literate as you'd want they do take papers and they spin them completely out of control which is why we get these sort of headlines saying don't eat carrots they're going to kill you or eat as many carrots as you can um, because they're your only way to live a bit longer and then I think muddying the water even even more is the lobbyists as well and just the way that the pharmaceutical industry is set up as, as a for-profit industry that also muddies the water completely i mean we were told that fat was really bad for us and sugar was great for us for so long Uh, and you know hopefully nothing on that scale is happening now but how would we know because you know you have to look at who's funding the research and 
And so it's it's really hard to get into. It's really hard to get into without falling down, A, a conspiracy theory of some kind, or B, just utter despair, and I'm never going to get on top of this, and so why bother? So yeah, I definitely I definitely get that sense as well, and I feel it completely. You pick up something to eat and you think, should I eat this? Like, what was the latest <laughs> paper? Well, I think I'm, th- through all of my looking into these different issues, I, I always come back to the, and it, it's incredibly boring, but I come back to the headline that moderation in everything is probably best. And that's why you don't see that headline, because it isn't particularly exciting for a, a tabloid to say this is the next big new thing, that if you have a, a moderate diet and don't eat too many nuts or too many eggs or whatever the food is, or don't have, don't do exercise to an extreme, but do some exercise and get a decent night's sleep most nights of the week, you're probably going to do pretty well. The science is fascinating. The dietary science, the fasting diets, I I think is interesting. And I, I think there is some common agreement that of any of these interventions, maybe not fasting to an extreme, but just eating less is probably the one that is going to maybe add a few extra years to your life. And again, that isn't hugely exciting. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, I think that's exactly the problem. I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. It's, it's the non-sensationalist solutions are actually the most effective. Yeah, I, I mean, if you think about our bodies, if you think about in, in terms of evolution, our bodies are sort of designed to withstand lack of resources. A lack of resources triggers something within our bodies, uh, survival. So that does make sense, especially when you see sort of heart disease killing so many people. You know, diabetes is a, is a pandemic in itself that maybe, you know, that is one of our issues, that resources in certain countries are so, it's just so, it's just too much. There's too much food and a lot of it's too bad for us. And so it's one of the, but then you say that to other countries where they don't have enough resources and it's it's, a, it's one of the great sort of issues of our time, the inequality, I guess, that one half of the population is killing itself by eating too much and, and another half doesn't have enough. Exactly. It, it is sometimes a difficult conversation to have when, as you say, there are millions around the world that are quite literally starving. And it just doesn't sometimes feel right to talk about these issues of immortality, living forever. Yet, I suppose for a lot of people in the Western world, they are bombarded with these messages. And it it just makes us think. And I I think not everything that you talk about in your book and some of the things that I discuss on this podcast are to be dismissed. But there's a huge dollop of common sense that has to be thrown in there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is an issue of people not realising that their health affects others, I think, as well. We should feel that we have that we need to look after each other. We, we don't live, you know, individually. What we do affects the rest of society. Just as, you know, people are asked to wear masks in a pandemic, you should also try and look after yourself in the spirit of community and, and society. Because especially... When we go through, you know, difficult times, you know, you, you don't want to be that sort of drain on society if you're constantly getting sick because maybe you didn't look after yourself. Just do the bare minimum, I guess. So we should feel that sort of burden to improve our health, especially as, as we get older. And obviously, the other thing is that you're never too young to start. We start to age the minute we're born and we start to deteriorate. Uh, I think someone told me sort of 20-ish. So um Basically, all of us are in this sort of state of deterioration and, and we should do anything we can to, to slow that down, not just for us, but for, you know, our loved ones and, and society as a whole. I agree. You're never too young or indeed too old to start some sort of common sense intervention that might make life and, and your health better. I'm curious, Peter, after this huge body of research that you've done, 
Is there anything about your lifestyle that you've changed with your own longevity in mind? And, and also, what are your longevity, if you have them, longevity aspirations? Uh, so I don't, I don't, I haven't changed anything. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I think finishing the book probably added on years to my life. I think while I was writing it, maybe <laughs> I could feel myself aging faster. But no, I think... Almost every author will probably say that. Yeah, I think they'd say the same yeah. thing. There are certain things that I know I, I can do better in terms of my longevity. I, I think one of the things... I, I'm vegetarian personally, and that has been brought up a lot as a potential thing that could help you be healthier for longer. Uh, I haven't gone sort of full plant-based. I might try that at some point to see how it makes me feel. But basically, I mean, I'm vegetarian because it, I just felt healthier. It, it wasn't anything to do with um, my sort of longevity goals. It was more in the in the sort of immediate, that, that day, <laughs> I, I felt better and I just carried it on. Yeah, I, I don't really have, I don't set myself a goal. I think we're all sort of, the really tricky thing is I think somewhere inside us is this predetermined date that providing we don't have an accident or anything happen to us that we will die and obviously we want you think that it, it's predetermined I think there's I think there's something in energetic code I think that's why we, you see those people that sort of live until they're 120 130 and they say oh well I smoked five cigarettes a day and I drank a beer at the end of each day they're doing things that shouldn't let them throw, but some people, they're just genetically coded to withstand certain diseases like cancers and, and heart disease. And, and so I guess the goal is just to beat that, whatever. But the problem is we don't know what it is. <laughs> so there's some people who could do amazingly well. They could be living 10 years beyond that, that thing by doing certain things, but we just don't know. It's really hard to put any data to it. It's hard to do a study to do with longevity at all because you'd have to wait 100 years to to get the results because you probably have to do it for a whole person's life lifespan so that's a that's a very long-winded way of saying um no i don't have any longevity goals and uh, i do try and keep myself healthy i do try and exercise and, and, and eat healthy as much as possible but the, the book didn't sort of turn me into a fanatic or anything i, I still make the same mistakes everyone else does i guess yeah, I will probably all continue to make those mistakes. Peter, this has been a, an intriguing insight. Thank you very much indeed. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Real pleasure. And if you'd like to check out Peter's book, The Price of Immortality, The Race to Live Forever, there's a link in the show notes for this episode where you'll also find a transcript of this conversation. The Llama Podcast is a Healthspan Media production. We will be back very soon with another episode. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. 